0: On today's show, we have Dr. James Turner, the second anesthesiologist we've had on the show, but he's not here to sit on a stool passing gas. Get it? Because anesthesiologists give patients inhaled anesthetics? But um, bum He was previously anonymously known as the Physician Philosopher on his blog about physician personal finance. He recently unmasked himself when he released his book, The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance. He completed his undergrad studies at Erskine College Med School at Wake Forest, was an anesthesia resident at North Carolina Baptist Hospital before returning to Wake Forest as a Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain Management Fellow, and there he has stayed as an attending. He's currently creating a personal finance curriculum for PA, CRNA, and medical students at Wake Forest. So we start out discussing some philosophical questions, the kinder questions, that have helped him to focus on his priorities and why this is a critical issue in personal finance. We get into the financial independence movement and how to calculate how much money you need to be financially independent and therefore comfortably retire. Why it's totally fine that he bought a tricked-out new car despite this being completely anathema to his spending philosophy. We also get into the public student loan forgiveness issue and who should be looking into this and why the 80-20 rule may help you to fire your financial advisor.
1: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not represent those of their respective employers.
0: And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Welcome back to the Physicians' Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. James Turner, also known as the Physician Philosopher, author of The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance. So, guess what we're going to be talking about today? Um, he has an interesting take on this, and so I, I want to dive right into that. And so, you know, what he talks about. Uh, most of all is the, is the behavioral psychology behind investing and behind just personal finance. And I think it all stems from what he calls or refers to as the kinder question. So first, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the on the show with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited
0: about this. So yeah, so let's talk about those kinder questions. So what what are the kinder questions and how come you find them so important? So the Kinder questions
2: are three questions that were created by someone named George Kinder, who's a financial planner. uh, And he has a whole course on life planning. uh, So people can take the course, become life planners. And uh, George Kinder, so it's spelled K-I-N-D-E-R, came up with these three questions. And the purpose of them was to help people sort of figure out the big picture of their lives so that they could then structure their financial decisions um, and really the rest of the decisions around that. Um, so there are three questions in the kinder questions. And the first one basically starts out with, say, tomorrow you wake up and you find that you're financially independent. There are no constraints. Uh, what would your life look like at that point? Uh, what would you do? What would your you know typical day begin to to be? And you kind of start Sorting through that, and you know, I, I typically recommend going through this with you know a spouse or a close family friend or someone that knows you really well, and just to kind of open a dialogue and have a conversation about these things and to bounce questions off each other. But the purpose of the first question is to say no constraints. You have as much money as you could possibly imagine. What would your life look like? And the second question places a little bit of constraint on you because it says, well, you're not financially independent. This could be today, uh, but you go to the doctor and you find out that there are five to ten years left to live. It might be day one of five years. Uh, It might be the very last day of the 10th. But the point is that you're going to die. You're not going to be any pain. What would change? What would be different knowing that than what you're currently doing? And the third question is a natural extension of that, which is that uh, you're going to die tomorrow. So looking back on your life, what would you have really been happy that you accomplished? What would you have regretted not having done and putting things in perspective in terms of what is most important to you when you look back on things with that, with that kind of lens. So the purpose of these questions is to, to really help you nail down what is important in your life. And when you go through it, you might be surprised to find out that certain things are missing. You're probably not going to miss doing an extra shift. You're probably not going to be on your deathbed wondering, you know, why you didn't make an extra $100,000. Uh, there are certain things that we think are important, but when we really nail it down, it turns out that's just not the case. And so when you start most of the money decisions backwards, in terms of figuring out the big picture first before you de- nail down the nitty-gritty, which is what everybody likes to jump to. It really helps you put things in, um, in perspective and in the right place.
0: So this helps you trim the fat?
2: Yeah, in a way. And it also helps you focus. So uh, when people finish training, what often happens is they have certain goals and they're just arbitrary goals. I want to go buy a house. I want to buy this car. I want to be working in this location or have that kind of job. Instead of sitting down and actually being intentional about it and figuring out what matters to them. They just assume that they naturally know what that is. And unfortunately, humans are very, very bad at not only figuring that stuff out, but figuring out what makes them happy and figuring out how money fits into that picture.
0: Actually, we just had an evolutionary biologist on the show where we discussed how poorly designed we are to contend with a lot of the modern, modern problems because we're, we're designed to live in tribes of 50 and uh, not be able to conceptualize higher than the number two. There's one, two, yeah. and many. So we're, we're really not designed for, for that type of thing. So yeah, we, we, I guess we generally tend to do what, what others tend to do. I, I think that you brought up the buying the house. My wife's from Switzerland, and in that country, one, their, their houses are made of poured concrete, which is just ridiculous. Uh, when you consider <laughs> how how our houses are built, right they're basically paper mache compared to their their concrete homes, but the yeah. finances are so different people there it's it's uncommon for them to own their own homes whereas here the American dream is buying your own home so when you when you're stripping things away with the with the kinder questions, I think something as that like why wouldn't I buy my home? Well, why would you you really should think of that just not instead of just assuming that you're going to do it why wouldn't you do it? Right. I really weigh that decision.
2: Exactly. It might, it might help you figure out that buying a house isn't the most important thing. And that um, that's not something you'd really miss if you never did it. So uh, how
0: I'm, I'm still having a little trouble bridging those questions to personal finance, recognizing what's important. But, you know, in terms of how you're spending your money or how you're investing or what you know, how much you need to work. How, how do you make that leap? How do you make, it's? I guess it's not a leap, but how, how do you connect those things? Sure, so so if you start with the big picture first,
2: that helps you figure out what your ultimate goals are. And then uh, continuing that backwards forwards theme, uh, I encourage people to go through something called a backwards budget. So everyone's heard of a, you know, a zero dollar budget or the Dave Ramsey style envelope system, things of that nature. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not good at that. Uh, I talk about and think about personal finance and write about it all the time. And my spare time is pretty much what I'm doing. Uh, That said, that's just never something I've been particularly good at, nor did I feel like it was ever really necessary. And so backwards budgeting starts with the big picture first. So once you figure that out, then what you can do is say, okay, well, some things that are important to me uh, include leaving an inheritance. I want to provide a sustainable lifestyle for somebody or maybe I want to pay for my college for my kids maybe that would be important to me to leave enough money for that they could do that you might think about in that first question you know if you're financially independent what your life would look like and that would spur you to really try to figure out how to get to that number what is your number what is your annual spending like what would it what would that be after you design that ideal life so once you have the details figured out in terms of what you're really looking for then you can start putting numbers to them and working towards those that gives you savings goals for maybe your mortgage, if you have one, your kid's college education, when you want to retire, uh, if that is early or at a standard or traditional retirement. And then you can start figuring out what you need to be saving every year in order to get to that number. So, you know, figuring out the big picture first allows you to have kind of the canvas built and then you get to apply some paint to it by, uh, you know, really dialing in the numbers that'll help you get there. So, that's that's really the, the purpose of it is to connect it to a budget that will then get you to that life that you desire that you desire.
0: Something else that I, that I've heard you discuss a lot and you you focus on it in your book is your your ten percent rule. I, I really enjoyed reading that, and we we kind of have a ten percent rule in our house. It doesn't it doesn't apply to finance. It applies to screen time. So we made <laughs> we made Sunday night movie night so that when we're just exhausted. Because we have a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and they are very, very energetic little boys, um, yeah. so it can be it can be really taxing at time. And we try to minimize their screen time. So on Sunday night, it's movie night, and we just with with in order to absolve ourselves of the guilt, we just know that it's going to happen. We we'll put the movie on, and then you know we can you know put put our feet up and relax. So I think you have a similar idea with your ten percent rule where you can absolve yourself of the guilt of spending. Can you, can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, gu- I guess first I should say that we have a similar uh, uh, weekly routine, but we do it on Friday nights. Uh, we watch movies, movies kick, kick the feet up on Fridays. But yeah, so the 10% rule for, for money, the idea behind it is that physicians have a pretty unique financial situation where we go from making a median income to making multiples of that kind of overnight. And a lot of people... That's when they make their huge financial mistakes. So one way to remedy the situation where you want to just go out and spend all that money from all that pent up, you know, pent up delayed gratification is to spend a little bit of it, but not all of it. So what that allows you to do is to spend 10% of your increase in pay. So I normally tell people post-tax increase. So let's say that your, your post-tax income goes up by $10,000 from the time that you finish training, whether that's residency or fellowship. You would then take $1,000 and you can spend it on whatever your heart desires. Uh, it doesn't have to be financially wise. It doesn't have to be you know, an intelligent purchase. It just has to be something that you you really want. And the other $9,000, of course, should go towards things that make sense financially. So you should be paying down your student loans if you have them. You should be investing towards your future uh, or any financial goals that you might have. And what that allows you to do is, I mean, you know, in that situation, which is pretty similar to what I faced, I got to spend a thousand extra dollars per month and increase my lifestyle and really, uh, you know, deal with that lifestyle creep problem. But I felt like I was living like a King. And despite that, I was putting $9,000 extra per month towards really smart financial decisions. So truth and transparency, what I did with my thousand dollars was I financed a car, which is a really stupid financial decision that I would not recommend for anybody, but that's what I did with it. And, uh, we got a country club membership that gave us access to a pool, which we just started, you know, using in Memorial day. And, uh, if I walk, I don't have to pay anything else for the golf and there's a free range. And so that really kind of provided some things that, that we love to do. My, my, my kids and I love playing golf. We get to fish on the, on the, uh, the golf course. And, uh, I get to drive a car that I was, I was really wanting to have for, you know, about five years before that. So that's what we did with the the $1,000 and the other, you know, $9,000, we ended up paying off a tremendous amount of debt with and, uh, saving a ton of money my first two years after finishing residency. So we were able to accomplish our financial goals while still feeling like we could enjoy a little bit of it. So it took that guilt away, like you said, it was perfect.
0: Yeah, I think the car example is is the best one because oh, you lose money on it as soon as you drive it off the lot. Why would you buy a new car? Blah, blah, blah. You're giving yourself permission to make terrible financial decisions because you're making such great financial decisions with the other one. So you can just use that money with impunity and it'll and you're still you're absolving yourself of the guilt of uh, of making decisions that may not be the wisest.
2: Yeah, and and you, you apply that to any situation like that. So if you make a bonus, we do the same thing. So I get, I get an annual bonus in July and we're going to take 10% of that money and you know my wife gets to do whatever she wants with it, honestly. And then the other 90%, I'm going to pay off that car loan that I started two years ago and we'll be debt-free outside of the mortgage at that point. Um, you know, So it really does allow you to to enjoy a little bit of it without having that just guilty feeling. Because once you start diving into this arena, the personal finance or financial independence, and particularly the financial independence, retire early blogs and podcasts, what you'll find is that any decision you, you look at it and you say, well, you know, that could be money going towards my savings. And it's not, and you start to feel guilty about it. And I think, uh, like you said, absolving yourself from that is, is actually really healthy. And provide some balance, and and I certainly know that I need that.
0: So you're actually the first person we've had on the podcast that's talking about the fire movement. A few months ago, I had the Frugal Physician, so we definitely uh, got a got a good amount of of the wisdom and frugality. But let's just talk about the fire movement first. You you kind of you mentioned it almost in passing, but I think this is going to be new for a lot of people. So let's let what is the fire movement? What does fire stand for? And and what is this community? What is this idea?
2: Sure. So FIRE is an acronym. It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And the idea is that if you can do a few simple things, so earn an income, live below that income that you earn, so you live within your means, and then save the difference. And if you build that up where you're saving enough, you can actually retire at a pretty young age. So Mr. Money Mustache was the one that kind of started this uh, you know, thought process, at least widely. I guess Vicki Robbins uh, in her book originally started the, uh, the movement way back in the 80s or 90s uh, with your money or your life. But the idea is that this, this notion that you have to work until 65 when Social Security starts kicking in or that you have access of 59 and a half to your 403B or 401k, you don't have to wait that long to retire. So I plan to be financially independent when I'm in my mid-40s because of that 10% rule and applying the 90% where it should go. That said, I'm not going to retire early and and it's uh it's actually it can be a little bit of a controversial topic in in medicine. So one of my, you know, partners in the White Coat Investor network, Physician on Fire is someone that writes prolifically about this topic and is someone worth visiting for for more information on it. That's the general basis behind it is that you save enough money to then be financially independent. And I think we'll probably get to to the the math behind that a little bit later, but that's the general premise.
0: All right, so Basically, you cut out as much of that fat that we were talking about earlier as humanly possible so that you can retire as early as possible. You so, reduce spending yes. as much. But Mr. Money Mustache, I've read and heard about him. He, like, he takes his bike everywhere. I don't think he even owns a car. Like he's, that, that philosophy has stripped away so much of the creature comforts that we get, we get so used to that I think it would be challenging for a lot of people or even if you were into it, be challenging to bring your spouse and kids along for that ride?
2: I think it's really challenging. So there, there's a minimalist movement that is definitely tied to the FIRE movement where you cut down as much as you possibly can. The interesting thing is that when you have a physician's income, it really doesn't require that much stripping. It just depends on how much student loan debt you have and the situation that you're starting with. But basically, if uh, if you're able to pare down things, you can get there faster, but you don't have to. So for example, if you earn a, a good income, and most physicians do, then you 're able to get there relatively early, despite the fact that we started saving really late Now, what you can 't do, what you can 't do is say well i 've delayed all this gratification i 'm going to spend all this money and then start saving when you 're forty uh, and expect to just magically get there uh, you know ten years later when you 're fifty that's just not going to probably happen unless you really start paring down. But if you start early right when you finish training. For most physicians, it's a doable thing to, to be able to retire by the age of 50. Um, I mean, if you save 30% of your income, that's, that's easily doable for, for most physicians.
0: Something that I've taken away from that isn't necessarily that I want to you know, work a ton in order to save a ton and strip away from my spending, but rather there's no need for me to kill myself if I have no intention of retiring until 70. Like I, I have every intention of retiring at 70, but I'm not gonna kill myself on the way there. I'm gonna, what I, what I used to do is every time there was a four day or a three day weekend, I would take those hours that I missed on the Monday and add them to my other days, work more days, work more. And I was, sure, I'll leave a little early this day. Sure, I'll come in a little late that day. Sure, I'll take this day off. I mean, I, I still work a lot, I I, I want to be there for my patients and be available for my patients, but when we make decisions to go on family vacations, it's I try I I have I have the tendency to to not want to do that. I still have that philosophy of wanting to really you know work and earn and do well, but it, but I'm I'm finding that I'm getting better at balancing that with sure I'll take the day off, which is which is which is a different philosophy, and that happens to be the one that that works for me, but. I think the, the important idea behind this really gets back to the, to the kinder questions. What, what is really important to you? And, and are these other things in your life actually making you happy? And if the answer is no, stop spending your money on them. You know, stop, yeah. stop wasting your time on them.
2: I completely agree. And, and actually, that's something I've been struggling with a lot lately myself, Brad. You know, and, and I have decided pretty recently that I'm going to take as much time as I can get from my job. So my, my kids are only young once. And I want as much time as I possibly can with them. So I have three kids. They're, you know, eight, five, and two. So I only have 10 years with my oldest and, you know, in terms of being in the house. So I I don't want to miss any of that. So any day that they will give me off from work, I take it. And I am giving up some income and doing that and delaying what could, you know, be going towards my savings and getting to that financial independence number, but it's just not worth it. And something that's tied to that actually that I think is really, really important is this idea of, you know, whatever name you want to call it. So I call it someday syndrome, the idea that you're going to be happy someday when X happens. So when I'm an attending physician, when I am a partner, when I am financially independent, we set all these milestones, but human beings are meant to be productive. And so I think that we get caught up in this idea that someday we're going to be happy when whatever milestone happens. And that's just not the case. If you can't learn to be content with what you have and where you are today, you're likely never going to find it. And so I think it's really important to have that, and you know, to to have a big picture plan and where you're heading, and the, the idea of of getting there and putting some numbers to it's important. But I really do think that finding content contentment and gratitude with where you currently are helps a tremendous amount in finding that balance.
0: Oh yeah, gratitude that that's a theme that keeps coming up over and over and over in terms of uh, personal satisfaction and, and happiness. But that that's another podcast for another day. Uh, let's sure. let's stick to the let's stick to the retirement. So the money that you need to retire what i read in your book was it should be about 25 times your annual spending and safe and what are the safe withdrawal rates and those uh, you know they re- they varied from Two to diff- two to five percent. So, can you can you break that down a little for us? How much money you need to retire?
2: Yeah. So, this comes from something called the Trinity Study, uh, where they looked at how much money can you withdraw safely from your nest egg if you are no longer earning an income and be reliably or you know reassured that it's going to last. And their metric was to last thirty years. So, in this case, they determined that as long as you had a reasonable amount of stocks in your portfolio, that you could safely withdraw 4% from your portfolio based on market returns from you know, the last, I think it was 100 years. And you had a pretty much 100% chance, 95 to 100% chance that the money was going to last those 30 years that you needed. So obviously, the less that you take from that, the more the the chance of that happening goes up. But you know, 3%, you can rest assured that's going to last for uh, you know an indefinitely long period. The reciprocal rule to the 4% with safe withdrawal rate that the Trinity study showed is the 25X rule. So math helps kind of show this example. So if you have a million dollars and you took 4% from that, that'd be 40 grand. That's how much you could safely withdraw from that every year. Well, if you determine that your annual spending was $40,000 and you multiply that by 25, that would get you to a million. So they're reciprocal. And that's where that 25 times your annual spending number comes from and what most of the financial independence community will quote to you as the number you need to get to to be financially independent. So it's 25 times your annual spending. Uh, for those that are retiring early, some people might argue that you need to save a little more than that, maybe 30 times your income, or excuse me, 30 times your annual spending. But uh, the 25X is, is the you know, traditional number that's quoted.
0: When I was reading that, it, I thought, does this account for inflation? Because you mentioned earlier someone retiring at 50. So that person retires at fifty and has a certain spending, that spending is going to go up considerably over the next thirty years because of inflation, even if their lifestyle remains exactly the same so does how does this account for that? How does this account for inflation?
2: Well, so if you think about it, you know without diving too far into the weeds, the historical average you know market return for the last hundred years is ten percent Now, I don't know that we're going to get that going forward, but let's say that we get 6% and you are withdrawing 4% and the inflation rate is 2%, which is pretty close to the historical average, well, you're going to maintain your money. Your money's never going to change. So if you take out 4% and inflation is 2% uh, and you get 6% return in the market from your portfolio, you're going to have the same amount of money at the end of the year that you took out. Uh, so it's really dependent upon something called sequence of return risks, which is you know, what the market does right after you retire. So if you retire and the market tanks for the 10 years after you retire, and you're taking out 7% or 6%, you are probably going to be in trouble. But uh, the inflation is accounted for. And um, you know that's why the number is so low. And, and, and some, some people will tell you that you can take out more than that and adjust it as you go. And being flexible is important. So if the market tanks the second that you retire, you probably shouldn't take 4% out that year. That said, the financial independence community is very debt averse. And so all of these people who have 25 times their annual spending, it is assumed that they would be out of debt. So it'd be very easy to cut down on your lifestyle if you had to in that situation. Now that you shouldn't have to do that uh, based on the Trinity study and the historical numbers that are presented there, but it would be an option for that. But it does count for inflation.
0: You know, it's interesting that you talk about repaying the debt when a lot of people with student loans have their interest rate very low. So for, for some people that are financially savvy, they would say, this is free money. You're getting free money at a very, you're getting money at a very low interest rate that you can use to then invest. But, but it sounds like you, you have a different approach to that, to repaying, repaying your student loans. And then also by extension, the next question would be, what about, what about a mortgage? What about, you know, adding at what point do you pay back your student loans versus just Capitalizing on that at, on that money and deferring paying back as as long as you can, paying back as slow as you can, and then at one point is it okay to to then looking at into taking more debt and buying a house?
2: Yeah, so I think that so de- debt is different. Uh, you know, different debts are different. I guess is what I'm trying to say. So your student loan debt uh, is something that you're you're going to have to pay off regardless of what happens, unless you die. Uh, so that's a very different thing than a mortgage, where you know things get tight, you lose your job, and you get rid of the house. Um, and so I guess that's the first thing. Your student loan debt poses a little bit of a different problem. Even if you go into uh, bankruptcy, you're not getting rid of that debt. That said, I know that I have older colleagues who were in a time where they could consolidate their debt and they have interest rates that are you know in 2%. Um, that is not the case for most people graduating medical school now. I guess, I have-
0: I, unbeknownst to me, I became older physician.
2: (laughs) You didn't mean to, but it happened all all overnight. (laughs) It did. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's not a thing anymore. So my my student loans and most people's student loans coming out now are averaging between six and 7%. And that's even if you consolidate with federal loans. So when you refinance, you might get down into the three and change kind of territory depending on your situation and who you refinance with. So the numbers aren't quite as nice as they used to be, which makes this a little bit easier of an argument. The other thing too is that I, I really, regardless of what debt we're talking about, I think it's a dangerous thing to get used to debt. So our, our economy, our culture, living where we live, teaches us that it's okay to be in debt. It's okay to finance cars. It's okay to have credit cards. It's okay to have mortgages and student loans and because everyone else is doing it. Why not? And uh, that can be really, really deadly because what ends up happening is you start looking at everything in terms of monthly cash flow. You start looking at it as, oh, well, I can afford the monthly payment and you forget that big picture. But I- I'm pretty debt averse and um, you know I've got my own reasons for that. But ultimately, the goal is to be out of debt and to have enough money to be financially independent, regardless of what you're trying to do. You know, that's eventually the goal, hopefully, for everybody. And keeping your debt around just prevents that from happening.
0: Yeah, I've, I, I read that taking on debt that appreciates, uh, for an investment that appreciates is different from taking on debt for for something that depreciates. And so if you're buying a car, clearly that immediately depreciates. But when if you're buying a home or you're investing in your own education, right, That's that's an investment that appreciates with time. So I think if you separate those two things, it's a way to avoid that slippery slope of then getting into credit card debt or sure. buying furniture with financing furniture and financing all these things that that appreciate. So, you know, if you're, you're if you're investing in real estate, you're buying even something like a vacation home, if you are buying it, renting it out, using that to cover the mortgage, the equity in the home will hopefully appreciate over time and, you know, that's that's different from financing some crap that you don't need that's just going to that's going to depreciate.
2: No, but that's, it's that's I think it's true. a
0: difference in philosophy.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I mean, you know, people classically break things up into good debt and bad debt and 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 that kind of uh rhetoric. And I think that's that's helpful. I mean, obviously you have to go into debt to, well, that's not true. 80% of medical students go into debt to become a doctor uh and I think most people would say that's money well spent. So it's it's not it's not that uh it can't be used as leverage. It's just a matter of not getting used to it forever.
0: Yeah, I I pointed something out to my wife. I said, "Watch the commercials at the Super Bowl and each time a commercial comes up, just think about the value of whatever they're advertising adds to society." And what do they advertise? Luxury cars that just increase your debt but don't actually make you happier. Junk food that makes you, you know, that that creates all sorts of health health problems jewelry that you know doesn't actually make anyone it's just all that's all part of the american philosophy of hey hey, physician philosopher it works it's works so well with your name the um that's right the american philosophy of uh, philosophy of just buying all this stuff that the the commercial society that doesn't actually make us any happier which again gets back
2: to those kinder questions it really does and all, all this stuff's really connected so there's There's good literature. So a great book actually about this is is a book called How to Think About Money by Jonathan Clements. And he kind of dives into a lot of this. But one thing I, I found out of that was a research paper and they talked about ways to spend money that will actually make you happy. And you're getting at one of them, which is the idea that Buying things typically doesn't make you happy. Spending money on experiences with loved ones typically is a recipe for for success in that in that arena, you know, in terms of finding satisfaction that will that will last. But the American culture is just bent on having you buy things that will not actually result in happiness, even though if you think it will. And and studies have shown that we as humans are are really, really, really bad at at forecasting what will and won't make us
0: happy. Yeah, I would argue that your investment in the country club. Membership shouldn't go into your ten percent of frivolous spending because you're using it as a vehicle to spend more quality time with your family.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and and, you know I'm not gonna lie to you, I I viewed it that way as well, and and I think that's actually panned out to be true. So you know when I go play golf with my one or two of my kids, my you know obviously my two year old's not quite old enough to play golf yet, but um, I get to spend two to four hours with my with my little girl or my little boy and ask them how school is going and make sure that I'm doing my good you know doing a good job as a dad and checking in on them. And it's pretty much undivided time. I put the phone in the, in the cart. It's on vibrate. I don't even listen to the thing. And I just get to talk to my kids for four hours. So there aren't, aren't too many opportunities to get to do that. And hopefully, my hope at least is that they continue to like golf. And that'll be something I get to do with them even through their teenage years when maybe I'm not their favorite person. <laughs> so um, <laughs> because they fall in love with the sport. But at, at the same time, I, I completely agree with really. Agree with you that um, that was more of an experiential spending for me, whereas the car is obviously the exact opposite and goes against anything that the psychological or behavioral finance literature would tell you to do.
0: So, I, I don't want to take you away from your kids for, for too much time. I, I really appreciate the time that you've given us. But, one more, th- if, you, if it's okay with you, there's one more thing that I want to talk about, and that's yeah, of course. repaying student loans. So like you said, the interest rate now are between five and 7% and something that you take a a deeper dive in than I've read anywhere else is those repayment options like the repay and the public student loan forgiveness. So can you just give us a a brief overview on the, the ones that are most likely to apply to our listeners?
2: Sure. So this can get complicated fast, so stop me if it does. But public service loan forgiveness is something that's been widely uh, publicized, at least lately in the media. So MarketWatch and a couple other places had an article that said that 99% of people that applied for public service loan forgiveness didn't get it. So I think that people are starting to catch wind and many physicians are already aware of the program. But the idea is that if you make 120 qualifying payments or one monthly payment for 10 years, then you will have your student loans forgiven as long as you're making qualifying payments. And interestingly, that money is forgiven tax-free, So, uh, which is different than some other forgiveness programs we can talk about. But the qualifying part of that is you have to work, your work has to be qualifying. In other words, you have to be full-time. You have to work at a qualifying employer, so typically a 501c3 or a nonprofit organization or a governmental hospital like uh, the VA might you know qualify. And that means you have to be employed by them. So if you have a private practice group that contracts for the hospital, but you're getting paid by your your private practice group, that wouldn't qualify. And then you have to be in a qualifying program. So there are four income-driven repayment programs. There's repay uh, or revised pay as you earn, the original pay, which is pay as you earn, um, just pay as you earn, um, income-based repayment or IBR, and then income contingent repayment, which is ICR. So those are the four that fit into being a qualifying standard repayment program. But that doesn't make sense because you pay your loans off in 10 years if you enter that program. So there's not any forgiveness there if you stay in that the whole time.
0: Sorry, but, just the, the 503C. 51C3. Yeah. 51C3. So just the students that, that have this debt that are considering taking a deeper dive into this, they think they might be at one of those institutions is this all academic institutions and government institutions is it only is it community hospitals is so i went to i went to residency at georgetown and georgetown was bought out by medstar so uh-huh. does then if i was a if i was paid by georgetown would it qualify me but if i was paid by medstar then i wouldn't like how, how do we know whether we should to take this deeper dive and figure out if we qualify?
2: Two things. Not every academic hospital qualifies, like you're alluding to. And the second is that you can check this out. So, there are two ways you, you can look organizations up by their tax filing status. And I don't have the name right in front of me, but if you just Google 501c3, you know, tax lookup uh, or something of that nature, you can actually find out how those organizations are filing their taxes and if they would qualify. Uh, That said, it's actually best practice to submit something called an employment certification form if you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness. And you, you submit that form every year so that you can qualify your payments. And if they change their filing status, then at that point, you would realize that because it would be on the form. And um, the uh, the PSLF program would also tell you that. So that's why you don't want to wait until the 10-year point to make sure that all your payments counted. You want to do it every six to 12 months uh, to make sure that your payments are counting in case, in case something happens like what you're mentioning at Georgetown. But yeah, not, not everyone qualifies in terms of their employer just because they're in academics.
0: So you can actually start contributing to this even during residency. And if you're in a long residency program, like say neurosurgery, where it's seven years, or general surgery and do a fellowship, then once you're done with the residency, then you just have to make qualified payments for three more years afterwards. But that, might mean, that would mean that you would need to stay at a qualifying institution for those three years, and then the rest of your debt is
2: absolved. That's right. So there are certain things that make you really want to consider public service loan forgiveness. One of those is a long training paradigm. So if you have a six, seven, eight, nine year training paradigm, and you only have to work one more year in a 501c3, as long as you've been in a qualifying program during those training years, why wouldn't you do that? Even, even if it's only $100,000, why wouldn't you work one more year and make 12 more months of payments and have it forgiven? The other thing is when you're, debt-to-income ratio starts to kind of get upside down. So if you have more debt than your annual income uh, or your anticipated annual income as an attending, say, for example, you anticipate making $250,000 a year and you have $500,000 in student loans, your debt-to-income ratio would be two. Anything above one and a half uh, is when you really should start considering public service loan forgiveness because that's when it becomes extremely painful to pay it back on your own. And then of course, there are some other, you know, kind of more unique situations, but basically long training paradigm or a very high debt to income ratio, public service loan forgiveness should be on your radar.
0: There's a lot of chatter about the rug being taken out from under people in the PSLF, where they think they should qualify, they thought they were qualifying, turns out they're not qualifying. A lot of people that thought they should qualify, turns out they aren't qualifying. Can you clarify some of this and give give our listeners some direction over some of the noise out there?
2: Yeah. So the article that I mentioned earlier is kind of the most famously quoted, which is that 99% of people that applied during the 10-year period after it started didn't get it. And uh basically, what it results in is I think seventy percent didn't qualify, and then twenty-eight percent didn't fill out the paperwork properly. Really, what it comes down to is is this, and this isn't to be crass or to be you know blunt, but if someone's going to forgive you hundreds of thousands of dollars, you should probably know the ins and outs of the program that you're in. And unfortunately, when this first came out, nobody knew the rules, nobody really understood how it worked, and and uh, you know exactly how they should be attacking this. Um, which programs to be in, which qualified, which didn't. And so the result of that was people um, not making qualifying payments. Nowadays, if you, if you submit that employment certification form, you can do it, you know, as often as every six or 12 months and make sure that your payments are counting. You can also call fed loans and, and talk to them. Now they are notoriously bad uh, to deal with. But that said, if you do those two things, you can make sure that those payments are counting and that you're not making years of payments and having no idea that they're not, they're not working.
0: Oh, that would be horrible.
2: Yeah. And, and, and it, it happens. People say, oh, well, I didn't realize that you know, some of my loans didn't qualify. So they have, you know, they're in a certain program and, and they didn't realize that, that they didn't qualify. You know? And so, for instance, you know, none of your private loans qualify. So some people have a mixture of federal loans and private loans. Well, obviously your private loans aren't going to qualify for public service loan forgiveness.
0: Because uh, they don't care if you're doing public service. That's
2: They're exactly private loans. Right. So you have, to, you have to know the ins and outs, the details of, of the program that you're in, and then submitting that ECF or the employment certification form every six months will save you from that pain.
0: All right. Well, um, again, I don't want to keep you from your, your family ever, any longer, but there is, this is the last thing, and I promise. You're fine. And it's the 80-20 rule. So you, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of rules sure. in your book. There's the, 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 <laughs> I do the, have a lot of rules. withdraw four percent per year. And then you have then you have the 80-20 rule. So let's just let's just cover that. What what is what is the 80-20 rule and and how can we convince our our physician and dentist listeners to take a deeper dive into personal finance, even though they might find it extremely daunting?
2: Well, you know, the thing is is that this all comes from the Pareto principle, the idea that uh, in most walks of life, whether it's dentistry or medicine or personal finance, there is a critical 20% that you have to know in order to get 80% of the results or 80% of the intended you know, benefit of what you're looking at. And so that is the premise behind my book. So the 20% of personal finance that doctors need to know to get 80% of the results. The reason that that's so important is because I feel like, and in teaching medical students and residents and other students about these topics, I feel like many, many people just look at it and say, this is just too daunting. There's no way that I could do this myself. And that's actually not the case. So there's just a critical 20% that you need to understand. And if you get that, you're going to be just fine. You you can learn the rest if you really want to, but the rest of the 80% of the work is really just to get the 20% that's left. And at some point, it's uh, the law of diminishing returns. Putting the work in is just not going to be helpful. So uh, that book really distills down uh, what that 20% is. But um, the purpose is to make it digestible and understandable and practical advice so that people don't have to um, get stuck in the weeds, which is what tends to happen in personal finance sometimes, where people just don't even get started often because they're just too intimidated.
0: So the the whole idea is you don't need to be as good at managing money as a financial advisor. But the amount that you have to pay a financial advisor ends up being enough to cover the difference. So you, you, you might not be able to manage your money exactly as well as them, but you can probably do it close to that. And that difference is the difference that you end up paying them. So you save that money and now you've covered the difference. So just by learning the 20%, you don't have to learn that extra 80% that they probably know or may not, yeah. may not even know.
2: Well, and, and I was about to say, so, so this is a uh, tricky situation. So I think the doctors of all varieties break up into three groups. One is the do-it-yourself investor, um, which I want as many people to be in that group as possible. That said, I'm also a realist, so I recognize that's not the case. And that a large portion of doctors fit into the other two groups, which is the dot the I's, cross the T's group, where they probably know a good amount about personal finance, but they want to make sure they're not doing anything stupid with their money so they get some a professional to look at it. And the third group, which is a large group of people, is the group that they just outsource it like anything else. They outsource it like their childcare or you know, the groceries or cleaning the house. It's just you know something that someone else can do for them that they don't have to waste their time doing. And unfortunately, personal finance, actually fortunately, but unfortunately for the people that get help, personal finance is is the more you learn about it, the simpler it gets. And it's not because you all of a sudden understand very complicated math and theory. It's because you understand that accepting average market returns through index funds is almost always going to outperform 90% of investors who are trying to beat the market. And so if you just Put your money there and don't take those fees, like you're talking about that you know an advisor might cost you, and you don't take the fees that an actively managed fund would cost you that an advisor might put you in. You can often not even outperform the advisor with their fees included, but just in terms of their their market returns too. Because the way that personal finance works now, uh, we understand is that actively managed funds where people are paid to outperform the market just don't they don't do it. So it's uh, it's this funny situation where people are paying people for advice. And at least in terms of the investment management, that's often not helpful. Where financial advisors really come in and they really are helpful uh, is for the other stuff. So uh, having someone to bounce ideas off of, having an intermediary if you and your spouse aren't on the same page financially, having someone that can continue your financial plan if you die, having someone that you know really helps with the big picture and can keep you from selling in a down market for example if you if you do not have the discipline to avoid selling in a down market, then a financial advisor who prevents you from doing that is going to be worth their weight in gold so it just kind of depends on your situation and 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 what you're looking for but they they can be costly and uh, unnecessary if you figure out how to do this stuff yourself by just learning that twenty percent
0: so I think what you said about uh, mutual funds bears repeating, right? Ninety percent of mutual funds do not outperform the market. So these mutual funds, their job is to outperform the market. Their job is to know when to buy and sell. And if ninety percent of them don't know when to buy and sell, then and then you're not going to know which of the ten percent that do because they don't know which of the which of the ten percent that do. So you should just invest in the entire market, and you know you you can quibble over what percent should be in foreign developing nations or developed nations or American or, right. But the fact of the matter is if, as long as you're investing in index funds, you're, you're going to match the market and then you're then saved on the fees of of those mutual funds and then the financial advisor. So where the financial advisor comes in is, helping you make these other financial decisions that come in, like how much money you should be putting into your kids 529 and how much money you should be putting in in, through your 401k, or I mean, you should be maxing out all that stuff. But, you know, (laughs) and, and, you know, you have some extra money, should this be going into maybe looking into real estate or this should be so so managing managing the rest of it, you shouldn't be using the financial advisor to pick stocks, because the the fact of the matter is, you can't, they can't, nobody can. Is that is that
2: correct? Yeah, no, that, that that's that's pretty accurate. And this, you know, Speeves scorecard keeps up with all of this. So they they run they run a, you know, 15-year aggregate of the number of funds that have outperformed, number of actively managed mutual funds that have outperformed their their index whether it's a large cap, mid cap, small cap and 90 to 95% of them just don't outperform the index. And so that's it's an academic question at this point it's been answered. So I'd absolutely say it's accurate. And another thing you shouldn't be getting from your financial advisor is Financial products. You shouldn't be buying insurance uh, or annuities or anything of that nature from someone who is advising you to buy them because there's a conflict of interest there. So, one of the reasons why I recommend fee only uh, financial advisors as compared to fee based, which can sell you uh, financial products. But there are a whole slew of conflicts of interest in, in that topic that might, might be a podcast unto itself.
0: Yes, I was, I was just thinking that. I was just, yeah, that, that's, that's a completely other podcast. Or we can buy your book the physician philosophers right. guide to finance where you take a, a deep dive into into that issue itself you also discuss it uh, extensively on the blog so dr james turner the physician philosopher where where can people find you
2: yeah so you can visit me at the physicianphilosopher.com um i'm also I also have a physician only uh, facebook group called physician philosophers and uh, you can find me on twitter as well under uh similar names but uh physicianphilosopher.com is 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 the place to find most of my writing and and where I hang out the most.
0: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time away from your busy anesthesiology practice, your three kids and your your blog and your book. So, uh, it was your book was extremely informative. This conversation was even more informative, so I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Brad.
1: That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.
0: today's guest is not an attorney, accountant, or financial advisor, and neither am I. This information should not be considered personalized financial advice, and we will not be held liable for the use of any information contained within this interview. It is your responsibility to verify anything you've heard using other trusted and reputable resources.